This is Justin Mason with A Mostly Green Life, and today we're sitting down with Jake Stewart, scientist turned agroforester. In this special episode, Jake talks about his journey to reconnect with the land and build a farm in concert with nature, not fighting it, and the profound effects and experiences that have come from that. So this was a recording from our Mostly Green Tour RV trip this past summer. We stayed in a yurt in the woods out on his farm called Sweetwater Farm for several days with our family and his. This episode just might inspire you to sell everything you have and move on to the land like Jake, or just try a woofing program near you. Keep listening to learn more. We're here with Jake Stewart on Whidbey Island. He is the owner of Sweetwater Farms. And Jake, your journey to agrofarmer is a little bit interesting. You want to give us a quick recap? Yeah, quick is the operative word. Happy to have you guys here. Thanks for coming. I started, as I was just mentioning, I guess the quick version of it is my dissertation project turned into a small business around renewable fuels in Denton, Texas. And then it was kind of a meandering line around international sustainability, renewable fuels, and I sort of backed into food, uh, working in climate resiliency and climate adaptation. And that, that backing into food just kept, became my, my main objective at that point. Mm-hmm. And so about seven years ago. And you even did city government at one point, right? Uh, yeah, I've kind of taken, uh, like you, I've had this focus on trying to do well by doing good and make mm-hmm. some changes on things that mattered. And I've done that from private sector, public sector, and nonprofit sector. And the last run was running the climate protection program for the city of Austin, which was an idea of, okay, well, what's if we have the chessboard of the city in front of us, what can we do? And we made some progress, but ultimately I decided I wanted to be at the scale of a farmstead. Yeah. And that was the most sustainable for me emotionally and psychologically as well. Um, so this has been a, a long journey and I happened to meet this wonderful woman nine years ago that was also in business and heading the same direction. And we sold everything we owned, bought an RV and look, went looking for our farmstead. There's a lot more in between. but that's <laughs> how, long did it, how long were you in the RV? Two and a half years. And we, uh, we stopped to have a baby in California. I was working at the organic farm school there in um, Santa Rosa. But what started our journey is we ran a farm outside of Austin and the well went dry, you know, in one of mm. the notorious droughts. Yeah. And you talk about reality on reality's terms. Like I was just telling Jess, there's, there's no negotiation when your well goes dry. You're just done. And yeah. that feeling is indescribable. Mm. And so having worked in climate science and knowing the modeling, uh, you know, we made the decision growing food is hard enough. Why am I going to fight water? I'd rather deal with the issue of too much water, you know. Mm -hmm. So that kind of was one of the catalysts in our journey. And then when we stopped in Northern California, I was working at the organic farm school and the well went dry there. Oh in 2014. Yeah, did you think you were going to stay there when you hit California? I didn't know, yeah. yeah. I, I knew that we were kind of feeling that area, and it felt good, and it was like this creeping drought was just like, and then given the trauma of growing up in that, you know, it was like, it felt like it was pushing us further north. So, we, And where'd you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Houston and then moved. To, spent most of my adult life in Austin. Yeah. Yep. So I still got most of my family there, and I love it, but... I've acclimatized to the Northwest. So. <laughs> and so when did you guys officially move out to Whidbey Island? Uh, we moved here in early 2015. So we just made it in 
just before the real estate market went crazy. And actually, part of that journey was trying to find our farm, where we were going to be, and everything just kept falling through. And Californians would come in and offer way over market, and it was exhausting. One property that we were set on fell through. And that was in Washington, right? That was in Washington. And then uh, Asia, my wife, said, well, look, let's just take a break from this real estate thing and go to one of these islands. So we Mm -hmm. waited in the first ferry line. It happened to be Whidbey Island. And she's reading in the book, you know, South Whidbey, home to many artists and farmers. And we were like, oh, this sounds cool. And then we got here and she said, I didn't want to say anything, but there's this one property on Zillow that's... (laughs) So we hopped the fence. It was run down, needed a lot of work, made an offer that day and never left. So that's how we got here. Wow. Yeah. And so how has the journey been with the land here? And what was the state of the land as well when you guys got here? Those are really instrumental questions. I would say, well, I'll start with Mason's question. Well, no, I'll start with your question. The, The state was sort of off the market for like four or five years. So nature had taken over in a good way, I think. You know, it was just like out here when you leave a structure, it it just, everything comes in. So it it scared enough people off the amount of work that was needed to bring it back up that made it an opportunity for us because we were Mm -hmm. naive enough to just jump in, you know, at that time and uh, had enough energy to do it. But that's sort of a good starting point for the journey itself, which I would describe as like also a, a personal journey, you know, of sorts in that you come in kind of with that mentality of I'm going to do this to the land I'm going to make. And this doing this for a living has a way of, if you're paying attention of the land telling you how it's going to be. Mm, And that's, that's powerful. That's been, that's been the journey. So my first year I was like, had that entrepreneur drive and the motor, and this is what we're going to do. We're going to clear this and that. And I got, I never get sick. And I got sick, like from exhaustion. It was like, almost like the land slapping me down. Like you're going to slow down, slow down. This is like been here for a long time. (laughs) And there's like native history here. And there's all kinds of things you need to learn before you just come in and think you're going to. So there's, there's been some powerful lessons and some powerful growth through that of learning pacing and paying attention. And, you know, the first rule of permaculture is to observe, right? And so just stopping and observing. A good example is like, where does the water want to go, right? Let's watch it through four seasons. Instead Mm -hmm. of saying, I'm going to build a pond over there in the garden over there, why don't you see what the land's doing and work with that? You know, it sounds simple, but that's the way we're wired and taught. Mm -hmm. It's sort of contradictory to that, especially in agriculture. Agriculture is traditional agriculture and this isn't a shot on it it's i've got many friends that are doing traditional agriculture is really geared around control mm-hmm. right it's this square and nothing's going to grow in this square except the thing that i want to grow nature abhors a vacuum it doesn't <laughs> like that model so you set up a scenario where you're in a fight and the general premise of regenerative agriculture is to do less fighting maybe your numbers your production apples to apples is quote unquote less, but over what time? What time are we talking about? That's why I say, oh, well, you can't, it's not economical to do this model. Uh, Okay, over what? Over one season or over a decade? Mm Because I'll show you a farm that my girls can inherit and grow healthy food without much supplementation. Right. That to me is more valuable. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if that answered your question, but yeah, it's been very much a learning process with the land. Yeah. And I dare say, you know, I'm not, 
it's hard not to sound woo-woo about it, but I'd say even just a spiritual side of, sort of process mm-hmm. of tapping into that relationship with nature when you're really immersed in it and you really rely on it for your water under our feet and the food above the ground. And that sort of intimate relationship really wakes something up. I, I think in every human, I, I call it blood memory. You know, mm-hmm. something that's in us. Even if you're just picking something and eating it, there's something that happens. And yeah. I don't know what that is, but... And there's something magical about this island. Did you, would you call it a vortex? I think, I think many do. Yeah, th- yeah, I was telling your dad that, you know, there's a long storied history of the Salish people practicing their medicine ceremonies on the south end. They still do pilgrimages here to do those ceremonies. Mm. So it's a lot of that honoring what was here a long time ago. And it's always been about like healing. You know, some people say Ojai and Sedona have those same kind of, and you find a lot of healers gravitate to there. So here's the same way. You see a lot of like really respected healers in their craft. And I don't really need to know why that is. I just know that it (laughs) is. And people who come and stay can kind of feel that. Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, my first time here, I started having really weird dreams mm -hmm. and they just like felt more impactful than normal dreams. And then the last couple of times I've had a crazy experience of discovering a spirit animal and that I have a connection to the great horned owls out here. And so I've been trying to incorporate that totem and the symbolism with the connection to that animal kind of into my daily life mm-hmm. at this point. That's it's powerful. And that animal in particular has a really strong connection to this land. Mm-hmm. Um, when we when we moved here at every kind of decision point we were at, this happened like three times that we would be talking about this big decision as it relates to the land. And twice a great horned owl in the daytime came and landed in like near us. This again, you can't really believe these stories unless you're here for a while. They sound like, <laughs> Oh yeah, sure. Guys. It sound like her hyperbole and right. I'm adding no hyperbole at all. Uh, stood there in the middle of the day and just stared at us uh, while we're asking this, this question. And then, so there's this just kind of, uh, yeah, call them totems or whatever, but we we try to help people pay attention coming out of the default world that we did. You know, there's no judgment on it, but there's stimulus overload, right? We're mm-hmm. kind of trying to tune out that stuff. And part of this experience is paying attention to the to what is coming to you, you yeah. know, and it's different for different people. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's a sting of a stinging nettle. Like we have a, a girl from South Africa here and she was like, I keep, nobody else is getting stung by the stinging nettle. And I do. And I was like, have you looked up the medicine and meaning? She's like, it just so happened the mineral deficiency that she was experiencing was really concentrated in a tea that you can make from the stinging nettle. Wow. Coincidence. I don't know, but <laughs> it, she's now drinking that tea every morning and can feel a difference. Wow. You know, that's so, amazing. Yeah. It's just those little kind of things. Yeah. yeah. And so you guys have um, several people that, come out and help you guys or that live here. Can you talk to us about that program? Sure. Yeah. So A, we have residents that live here. The idea was to share this 24 acres, particularly with people who live and work here on the island. Housing like everywhere is very difficult. So we try to provide micro housing with minimal footprint that integrates with the forest. We also participate in this woofing program and farm intern program that we've had a great experience with. The idea is for usually college kids, college grads that are looking for some experience come and it's a straight work trade for room and board, but they get to come and experience farming and learn with zero risk. So I mentioned that for people who might be interested and they're like, how do I even begin this? Like, again, Asia and I come from suburbia. We didn't have a farming background. 
So I, I put it akin to learning a language, right? You can buy the Rosetta Stone and go through the discs and try to learn that way, or you can drop yourself into Mexico City and learn Spanish. Mm-hmm. And the latter is the way to do it. It's more painful, but that painful that pain is growth, right? It's the <laughs> yeah. learning curve. The more the learning curve bends up, the more you can feel it. But that's and so, the Wolf program is a pain you can stop at any point. Exactly, and it doesn't cost you anything. Yeah. You get to make mistakes on other people's dime. <laughs> so it's really a wonderful way to do. It. So there's other programs like that, but I would highly encourage those experiences even later in life. Asia and I left executive positions at companies or whatever to go. Uh, volunteer on farms and we've gotten inquiries from phds and you know people just are drawn i call it a kind of a back to the land movement 2.0 you know less drugs with college degrees (laughs) 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 so maybe not i don't know (laughs) but but there is especially with the pandemic you can feel this and that's why i think you're what you guys are tapping into with this program is really important because i we see it in the inquiries and we see people just in a quote unquote successful, good paying job. And they're just having this, this calling, this yearning to get some, to connect to something. I think mm-hmm. that that's, if you boil it down, it's connection, right? Meaning and connection. So this Wolf program, like I said, we have some international people all over the world and it's fun to give them space to go on their own journey. And they're, uh, they're also learning and helping, helping us. And we'll have links in the episode description so people can check out the farm and, and yeah, you just, get involved. That'd be awesome. And you just set up a profile on Wolf if you want to get involved and you can scan all the farms, even in your area, to do like you know day visits and stuff like that. Very cool. And so even outside of that program, the yurt here that we're in, this mm-hmm. is on Airbnb, is that correct? So people can come explore and enjoy the serenity of the island and of the farm. Yeah, so I would break it up into kind of the evolving model would be sort of um i use the metaphor of filling a pond if you're going to fill a pond with water don't just use two conduits use a hundred hoses some of those will dry up and some of them won't so that was the model here of like yes we want to farm and we want to grow food but let's take some pressure off of growing food because we see too many of our friends that it's stressful to make a mortgage selling tomatoes Mm -hmm. i mean you know it's so it takes the joy out of it and so by diversifying the model and helping other aspects, the socioeconomic aspect, these other aspects, you can let the ship float itself a little bit and grow food with a little more joy, I think. So part of that is these short-term farm stays. We do glamping, we, the platform is less important of what we're trying to offer, which is a short-term farm stay where you can experience, you know, being in a, a you know, peaceful conifer forest and then also catching a glimpse of how an agroforestry farm works. I think and it's, it's really important. I think mm-hmm. it's a it's a service that you're providing, and obviously people are paying mm-hmm. and and you're making revenue from it. But mm-hmm. one of my first real connections I felt like to a farm and farming was when I stayed on Montesino Ranch down outside of Austin mm-hmm. and Wimberley, and they've got a farm and little bungalows right above the rows, and you can go out and pick food and and that that was the first time I really felt like I was on the farm. I'd done lots of farm tours, mm-hmm. but staying out there, waking up and looking at the farm and staying here and waking up in this forest, I think is a powerful you know, motivator and I think can, can spur a lot of change in people. I think you're right. I think that it is sleeping and like fully experiencing this, you the know, even a couple of, 
What's that? A full circadian cycle. Yes, <laughs> yes. And then if you can, eating from the land and drinking mm-hmm. the water and just immersing. And we don't have Wi-Fi out here for a reason. You know, the idea I was telling her, particularly during the pandemic, is people were at their breaking point. They still are. And just reading through that Gus book and what people leave in art and poetry, it's deeply moving. And to me, though, like, Yes, we keep our prices as low as we possibly can because we want it to be accessible. Mm-hmm. And we you know, make it free for some artists or poets and stuff that we've had stay here. Yeah. And because I think that's equally important, just mm-hmm. providing that space, that artist retreat, writing space. And that, it, it feels like that in here. It feels like that's what it wants to be. And we've tried to pay attention to those feelings, again, as woo-woo as it sounds, of what, mm-hmm. these, what this land wants to do. And if I were to like boil it down... My sense of it is that it wants to heal people. And sometimes that healing's not comfortable. Sometimes it's, there's resistance and someone's pushing, but it's always a motion towards, towards healing. And, and we've seen enough of that and experienced enough of it to really give it space. So we view ourselves as stewards of this land and try to really honor that, you know. But we have to make it sustainable on all fronts, right? Mm-hmm. So if we can allow, you know, be ethical in all of our, the way we approach all these aspects, but then keep the ship afloat, then that's success. Uh, So we've been here two nights and I can't really think of many times in Austin where I wake up and I'm like, I want kale and Swiss chard (laughs) for breakfast. But waking up here, I'm like, oh, I can't wait to saute those veggies and put nothing on them and just eat them with a little salt and pepper. and, And they're absolutely delicious. You know, you speak of healing and such. I had this recurring dream this time while I was here that I would get eaten by things. <laughs> and last night it was a bear that ate me. And but there was something different about it. Like I was less scared and just like, okay, I'm in this situation and there's no way out of this. So I'm getting eaten by a bear. Mm. <laughs> How do what what is that? Yeah, you know, it's funny because like Asia and I still uh, especially when we first moved here, we would still have dreams of that world that we, the stress of that world we left, and it manifests in a bunch of different ways. You know, you don't realize those those nagging of the full inbox and the full all those things that we just assume are just the way we operate. You know, that that's this subtle manifestation of of stress. It's funny you say that about about the bear because about a week ago we have a bear on the island. No way. Yeah, and it's a, like a kind of a big local story. Everybody's excited. Um, it's just a little black bear that swam over. Wow. Um, so it's funny. Maybe you're tapped into that. That's hilarious. It's not interested in people. It's interested in blackberries, I think. (laughs) But but, um, but yeah, there is this process almost like a um, de-traumatize. I don't want to overstate it, but like a decompression of that Mm -hmm. world that we're operating. What I think is not a healthy, not how humans are supposed to be operating. There's stressors here, but they're different stressors. Mm -hmm. And you're in that, like you said, being in that cycle alone of sunrise and sunset. And those like make such a difference to the to the general health. So what's the future hold? The future. Um, I think that. How, how it, far, when you moved here, how far did the future look to you? And mm, how far is it now? Good question. You mean future for what we're doing here or f- our broader future? For here. For here. And you. Yeah. And they're interrelated. Well, I was telling Jess, like, it feels like we've been here a lot longer than five years working on this. Mm-hmm. And part of that's having a baby and, you know, all the energy that that takes and all of that. But all I ever see is the next project, but it's, uh, I'm getting better about slowing down and 
you know, Asia's planting flowers, you know, and me metaphorically tapping it. That's why that balance of relationship is so important. You know, she's planting herbs and healing and flowers, and I'm thinking about the next structure or whatever. And mm -hmm. those two combined and balance is really, it's that yin-yang kind of thing. So all that to say is I feel like we're starting to get our, f it feels less like dog paddling, less, <laughs> uh, but it allows us to think a little bit bigger, but it's also the reminder of the pacing because your mind, our minds can tend to go to scale and all that stuff that we do, you know, and I have to constantly check that. It's not about scale. We don't want, we're okay selling out with what we have in the farm stand. Mm -hmm. We don't have to try to meet that demand, mm -hmm. you know, and that's a different inclination than what we're wired to yeah. do. Yeah. And it's, and it's a real struggle. American <laughs> yeah. Model, it creates this model. like internal struggle, right? right? Especially when you're trying to keep it. So, so that pacing, so I'll say growth with, with pacing. I could see another farm stay like this. I think it's really important what this aspect. I really enjoy that mm -hmm. offering to people. I think we'll continue to invest in climate adaptive plantings. So, you know, climate's shifting faster than any of us. Not the climate scientists, but <laughs> <laughs> faster than the, the than we want cycle. to believe. Yeah, than we want to believe. <laughs> and that means innovation in the form of trying new things out. So we're planting a lot of perennials that aren't supposed to grow in this zone, but that are, and uh, working with other local farms to try different lines of things. Yeah. So I think that that type of thing is really important. So you ask about the future. I say, I turn that problem on its head and I say, it's a huge opportunity for innovation. And that's the exciting part is like people trying new things about ways to grow mushroom from from sawdust or culinary or or utilizing forest sub ecosystems for a new type of perennial crop that might be integrated with the forest and then we'll build out this uh, little market stand here out here to provide more space for experience i think the experiential part of what we're trying to do is not only important but it also is of value to people right now i think at a time where the world feels so chaotic people want to just feel connected to the things around them. So, yeah. and that's you know, on a small scale with this, you know, you grab that mug off the shelf there that was made by the guy up the road. And whether you know that or not, I feel like you can feel these things. And so bringing in that connection, and I'll just mention also that I think art is really important in all of this. And so yeah. we have a lot of artists on the property. And as much as the practical things of growing food and managing water and all of these innovative sustainable systems, I think that art is the language that communicates that. And so connects make, to nature. Yes. Art is the manifestation of nature. Yes, yes. Yeah. So so making space for that and really just like the Renaissance came out of the, the you know, pandemic, <laughs> you know, I think that that's, this is a time for artists, mm -hmm. you know, when we're searching for where we're going and what's happening. And then I'll just say that I do feel that the model that we know well will continue to be challenged and bombarded in a way that creates some fracturing and, and destabilization, not in a chicken little way, but in a way that people have an opportunity have more permission to think big and to think differently. And it's a reassessment of risk, right? People say, how could you do that? How could you sell everything you own and just go get it? Like, that's super risky compared to what? <laughs> to me, you know, it depends yeah. on, to me, and this is just me, the cubicle job with a 401k feels more risky to me than land with two water wells and soil that can grow food. So it's, it's really checking your risk assessment 
against what we call it, we've seen. It doesn't take many turns of the dial to destabilize what we call normal mm-hmm. and the fragility of that system. And so we're in a window where as stressful as all that can sound, it's also a chance to check in with yourself and realize like you have permission to do these things and you may be making the least risk move, even though people around you will want you to stay in that mode. I think it's important what you guys are bridging, which is like that bridge between it can be like green over here and then this over here. And I think that that conversation in between, which it seems like you guys are addressing yeah. is super important because it helps make it less anxiety provoking for people to make steps. So yeah, steps. <laughs> yep. Well, thank you so much for your time today. And for having us here and oh, our family. Yeah. We love having you. You guys are welcome anytime. <laughs> What an inspiration he is and how magical was that land we were on? I love that land. It is so magical and peaceful and restful, ready to go back anytime. (laughs) As we were recording early episodes, we didn't really have a clear vision of our format. His wisdom and story doesn't quite fit with practical household sustainability, but we really think it should be told. So we decided to start a series of episodes we'll call Sustainable Stories. We'll be looking for more inspiring people in their stories. And if you have any suggestions or stories you want to hear, please let us know. That's right. If you know someone who should be on our podcast, shoot us a note.